Is it my turn? Okay. All right. Just wanted to be sure before I got up here. <laughs> good morning, good morning, good morning. How is everybody today? Doing all right? Wonderful. If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 9. We are done with our few, ver- few um, uh, messages on deacons. I, I just uh, really felt compelled by God to to take a few weeks and explain what the Bible says about that very important office in the church. Uh, This Sunday begins our deacon nomination process. We have ballots in the back, so please church members, this is a a church member only type thing. If you're not a church member, you can't nominate a deacon. Uh, So church members, please grab your nomination slip. You have all month uh, to pray about it. They don't have to be turned until August 31st, so take your time and pray. We need two. There's two men uh, to replace Jim Winchester and uh, Larry Maxwell. So uh, please remember that. Today we're going to pick back up in the Gospel of Luke and we will be there in, into the indefinite future. So I hope that you are excited about that. Amen? Amen. All right. There we go. That's what, I, hey, that's what I wanted to hear. All right. Let's see. How do we want to begin today? Um, let's go, let's back up just a touch and let's look at uh, chapter 9, verses 21 and 22 where Jesus gives what has come to be called his passion, uh, his passion narrative. And this is in all the Gospels. And he says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one about Peter confessing him as the Christ, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be, what, killed and on the third day be raised. And my argument is, is that when they heard, when those apostles heard the word killed, they didn't hear anything else he said. Uh, and they just freaked out because the, the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of the Jews, is he supposed to be killed? No, he is supposed to kill the Gentile nations and reestablish Israel as a power in the world. But they had missed, they had missed the, the heart of the scripture in that capacity. And Jesus comes with a different message And so what we see here is that Jesus will actually conquer first through suffering. Jesus will conquer first through suffering. Then we jumped over to Matthew and we looked at Peter's rebuke of Jesus for his prediction. Uh, Peter, just as many of the apostles, just could not accept the truth of his suffering, much like we don't like the truth that suffering is a part of being a Christian. Uh, do you wake up every day of your life thinking, hey, amen, today I get to suffer for the gospel. Is that how you start every day? No. But the Bible does teach that that is part of being a believer. They persecuted Christ. They will persecute us. So today in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23 through 27, Jesus goes really deep with the disciples to let them understand the call that they have received and what is expected of them as his disciples. Now, the typical argument goes like this, especially in contemporary American society. It goes, well, these commands were for who? The apostles, but these commands are not for who? Today's Christian. I would viciously argue against that. I would say whatever the command was for the apostles, I would say those commands carry over into our lives as Christians today because we are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. And so we must, we must take these words to heart that Jesus says. So join me, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. 
And he said to all, so all of the disciples, all those that were gathered together, Jesus said these words. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him, what? Say that louder. Deny himself. We could stop right there and talk about that all day, but we're going to continue. Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I'll tell you the truth. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Don't you wish you could have been there and watched the disciples' faces when he told them these words? I wonder if their faces were much like our faces today when we hear these words. They are paradoxical. They are somewhat difficult to understand. Uh, Jesus speaks at, from many times from, in the scriptures from a parabolic understanding, meaning that if we do not have the spirit, if we are not sincere in our desire to try to learn from him, sometimes we miss the point of what he's trying to say. So let's look at verses 23 through 25. The point for these couple of verses is true salvation. True salvation is found in self-denial. True salvation is found in self-denial. Notice I said true salvation. Why do I say that? Because there is such a thing the scripture calls as false conversion. So preacher, you mean to tell me that somebody can come down the aisle and profess Christ and say they believe and it not be true? That is exactly what I'm telling you. In fact, I would go so far to say that when Jesus was on this earth and walked with the 12, there was one in his group that probably smelled Jesus' body odor, ate meals with him, slept around the same campfire as him for three years, and at the end, not only did he walk away, but what did he do? He betrayed him. He betrayed him. And in fact, I would go so far to tell you that one of my greatest fears as a minister, as a father, as a Christian leader is that as we mingle around you and as we talk to you and as we are in the assembly from time to time, that I'm in the midst of people where there is someone there who believes they're saved and they're not. One of my greatest fears. And I don't really know who they are. Sometimes they prove themselves over time by their fruits. We can sometimes see that they are possibly not saved. But ultimately that is between the individual and God and their belief. But what Christ is saying here is that true salvation, one of the fruits, is found in self-denial. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you are hearers only and you do not do, the Bible says that you are what? Deceived. Say that word. Deceived. If you are a hearer only and you do not do the word of God, you are deceived. 
Do you remember the parable of the sower? Do you remember that parable of the sower? You've heard me preach on it several times. It's one of my favorite parables in all the scripture. Christ gives us four responses to the word of God. And each of these responses is to be taken symbolically to represent four types of hearts. They're the recipients of the word of God. I'm going to give you just a brief synopsis of those as we begin because I believe it is very pertinent to what we were looking at here. And it's not too far removed from when Jesus actually taught this in Luke. Remember the hard soul, that was the soul along the path. And the seed of the gospel, the word of God, cannot penetrate this hardness. And then the birds come along and eat the seed, and the birds represent Satan and his demons. It's kind of a scary thought, is it not, that here while we're here this morning and we're hearing the gospel preached and hearing the truth of the scripture, that there, there are demonic forces around us that know, that are sensing, trying to sense whether or not you are hearing and receiving the word of God. And when it does not go into your heart, they snatch it away. That's what the Bible says. It's a scary thought to think about, but it's true. They're always waiting close by so they can make certain that the word of God is deflected, deflected from the heart. So what this looks like is the person hears and just does not understand the word. They hear it, they don't get it, they get frustrated and they quit, or they hear it and they won't have it. They're just not gonna have it. They hear the truth and they say what? That's not for me. I know that the word of God says that, but I'm not buying it. That's the hard heart of the gospel. The next was the rocky soul. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately the plants sprung up, but they had no depth. So when the sun rose, they were scorched and they withered away since they had no root. The rockiness means... And don't miss this. The rockiness means that there is no true spiritual depth to them. They may have made a profession of faith. They may talk about God. They may, have, they may be talking about Jesus all day long, every day, be excited about him, come to church, maybe be in a Bible study. But the fact of the matter is there is no spiritual depth to them at all. They may even put scriptures on Facebook. Can I get a witness? Every day, all day long. But in truth, there's no spiritual depth to them. And when some serious heat comes against them over the gospel, what happens? They follow, they fall away and they stop following Jesus because they have no root. So as soon as personal loss over the gospel becomes a reality, they run for cover. This Jesus stuff is fine as long as I don't have to sacrifice anything. I didn't sign up for this persecution. I didn't sign up for this slander. I didn't sign up for all this. So I'm going to quit and walk away. That's the rocky soil. Thorny soil, this other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. So the thorns are symbolic for the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So the idea here is that there are two plants that are competing for life. Two plants competing for nutrients and water. And eventually the thorn bush wins out, chokes out the wheat and causes the wheat to die. This is the person that will put things of the faith, things of church or things of their walk with God in second place to their desires for the pleasures and cares of the world. That's what they do. 
For them, it's all about money. There has to be some angle of prosperity to this whole venture. I have a great opportunity this weekend to earn a ton of money, so I'm going to cut out on going to church and being with my church family. That's just an example of one of the types of mindsets that could be with the thorny soil. And then finally, the good soil produced grain, 160 30. So in the parable of the sower, the only one that is undeniably saved is which one? The good soul. The good soul. So true salvation is found in self-denial. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's tough, brothers and sisters. That's tough. That, that, that cuts straight through all, all the baloney, does it not? Cuts straight through all the baloney. Twist it, spin it, however you wish. You cannot deny what Jesus Christ is saying here. All of us, myself, staff included, everybody in here today should be convicted over this passage. Nobody should walk out of here today on cloud nine. You should be convicted. You should be convicted, just like I was convicted in writing this message. If anyone would come after me, what does Jesus mean by that? If anyone would be my what? Disciple. If anyone would say, I follow Jesus. I love Jesus and I'm going to follow him. If anyone would come after me, in the, in, the, in the context here, it literally means walking behind Jesus as his learner, literally walking behind him and following him around as he walks around and does ministry. That's what, that, that's what this literally means. If he is to come after me, let him deny himself. Is that what our American culture teaches us contemporarily? <laughs> no. Unfortunately, and we did not start out this way, amen? This, it did not start out this way. But today, the culture teaches us that everything that happens in life is all about who? Me. That is not the gospel. And that is not how our country began. It's not, but it's where we are today. Everything is all about me. And you see it on the TV every day. You see it in marketing campaigns. You see it in those, who here has got a robocall lately on car warranties? Can I get a witness? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Marketing calls nonstop trying to tell you how they can make your life better or how they can save you and all this kind of stuff. And all the time, the answers to all of our problems are here in the treasure of the scripture and in Christ. All the time, everywhere. So basically and fundamentally, let him deny himself. This means that you turn your heart and your mind over to Jesus Christ. That's what that means, fundamentally and basically. If you wanted to, to jot something down on a piece of paper in your Bible, that's basically what it means, that you are turning your heart and your mind over to Jesus Christ fully. 
It is like when they asked Jesus this question. He said, you shall, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So your worldview and how you interpret and judge the world is turned completely upside down. From you being God and telling God what you're going to do to God being God and telling you what you're going to do. Amen? That's what that means. From now on, we are no longer judging God. God is judging who? Us. That's what that means. It's radical. It is, it, it is, it is a, radical, a radical shift. No longer is it all about you and your desires. It's about God and all his desires. His word becomes the word for you that you live by. That's why we harp so much. And and just if you're wondering, the harping is never going to end as long as I have breath and can speak. I'm going to harp and harp and harp and harp on the fact that you need to be in your body need to get tired of studying the word of God. You need to learn every chapter of every verse of the Bible. And that is a lifelong task. Lifelong. Whatever ideas, hopes, and dreams you had for your life, they are radically transformed either slowly or quickly to align with God's direction for your life. You awaken spiritually and realize the world does not revolve around you. It revolves around God. And you begin to make all of your decisions and judgments in life based upon him. It's like this moment that the prodigal son had. Y'all remember that story? It's in Luke. We'll get there eventually. It's like that moment the prodigal son had, right? Takes his inheritance, leaves home, spends it all on, you know, wine and women, and he's, he's broke, and he's in the hog pen, and he's looking at the pods in the hog pen, and he's thinking, man, those things look good to eat, and he has this, this moment of clarity, this, this moment of spiritual awakening, and he realizes how good he had it where? Back home. Man, I could, I could be a slave, I could be a servant in my, on my dad's farm and live much better than this. It's that worldview renovation. It's that moment that you realize that I, my life has got to change and I've got to live for Jesus. That moment that proves to you in your heart that I'm really saved, that this is really true salvation because I'm beginning to understand that it's not all about me. It's about God and his will for my life in Jesus. That's what this is about. So if I want to understand what that is, then I get in the Bible and I learn about who Jesus is, which is why we're in Luke chapter 9. Amen? Amen. Let him deny himself. Paul wrote some very good words about this. Y'all remember who Paul is, amen? Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, so if you want to jot that down in your Bible, if you're taking notes, 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, to put off your old self, Paul says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul treats it like a garment to make it easy for us to understand. Take that old, nasty, sin-soaked, stained garment that you've been carrying as a burden your whole life. Jesus has come, forgiven you of your sins. He died on Calvary's cross. He's now released you from this curse, given you new life and new purpose. Take those, take that self, take those clothes off and put on the new self that is empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ for you to live for him and to be his servant. Paul says another thing in Philippians chapter three, verses seven through 11 that is very related. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. I don't know if you know much about Paul, but, but, but Paul was kind of an up and coming religious leader. Uh, many people believe that his family was quite wealthy from, from Tarsus. And there was no question he had a fantastic reputation in the Jewish community. I mean, Paul was in line to be a heavy-duty heavy leader in Judaism on his way. Jesus comes, dies, raised from the dead. The apostles go out. He begins to persecute the church. Paul is changed by the power of the gospel. And in hindsight, he looks back and he says, no matter how good I had it, in all the things that I had and was, nothing back then compares to what I have now in Jesus Christ. Nothing. In fact, it's less than nothing. It's refuse. It's rubbish. It's garbage compared to what I have in Jesus. Is that how we feel today as American Christians? Do we, do we really feel that way? Do we believe that in our hearts? That, that compared to what we have in him, everything else is rubbish? I hope we do. I hope we do. So deny himself. And next he says, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now remember this. We read this and we instantly think about Jesus and the crucifixion and him carrying his cross to, to Golgotha. That hasn't happened at the time he talks to the disciples about this. Amen? That hasn't happened. So he just gave them the passion prediction in verses 21 and 22. And now he comes back and he says, let him deny himself first. Then also he needs to take up, take up his cross and follow me once, one time, just once, daily, daily. Daily take up his cross and follow me. Salvation is, no question about it, 
A one-time profession of faith where you are brought from darkness into light. No question about that, okay? But the proof of salvation over the long term is not a one-time occurrence. It is a daily action in our lives to hear the word of God, to obey the word of God, and follow Jesus in our daily affairs. That's what he's trying to get through to his disciples. It's almost like, it's almost like he knows that that error is going to be made. And so he says daily to counteract their thought. Well, it's just a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing. He's crucified and he's buried and he's raised from the dead one time. But that power that resides in us is a daily realization in our life as we live and as we pray and as we sacrifice ourselves and as we deny ourselves, it is a daily taking up of our cross now this would have been a very shocking image for him to give the disciples because we know what did Jesus do with that cross and there's all kind of arguments was it the whole cross was it the cross member most historians will tell us that it was not the entire cross that it was just the part that was on his, on his shoulders like this and then they on the cross and raised him up. You can argue that all day long. But the fact is, was that he was made to carry that cross, so the criminal was made to carry that cross from his place of conviction all the way to the cross where he was crucified. There's one primary difference in Jesus, though. Jesus embraced it. Jesus carried it joyfully. Jesus carried it voluntarily. Jesus took up his cross and carried it to Calvary. Follow me. The disciple must begin to follow and continue to follow Jesus. He must trust him, walk in his footsteps, obey his commands out of gratitude for his salvation. Look what Jesus has done for me, so this is what I must do for him. What I must do. So we have true conversion through self-denial, taking up the cross daily to follow me. And so this true conversion proves itself in lifelong what the Bible calls sanctification. Anybody been sanctified recently? Amen? It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an enjoyable process sometimes. Sometimes it's downright painful. Sometimes it's that process that makes you wonder, God are you up there? Do you know what I'm going through down here? I mean, you say I'm your child and I want to believe that, but is this really, is this really your will? And then what happens? You say amen and you keep charging forward because you know nothing befalls you in your life that has not come through God. Romans eight twenty eight. All things work for good for those that are called according to his purpose. We must believe that because it is true. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now this is one of those truths that's called a paradoxical truth because it sounds just, just weird. So if we want to save our life, we must lose it in order for Jesus to save it. 
So in order to have true spiritual life, meaning a life that is truly converted to Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there is but one way to achieve that by what Jesus is saying here in his words, and that is losing our life, sacrificing our life for Jesus. That is the fruit, that is the proof in the pudding, as my grandmother used to say, amen? That that as you live your life in sacrificial service, denying yourself, taking up your cross, that is the sanctifying process that proves you are a believer and a follower of him. For what does it profit a man? And here's the one you've heard all your life, right? There's these songs written about it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, what is the implied answer? Nothing, right? It profits nothing because you're dead. And if you're dead, you can't enjoy all the stuff that that you've got. That's the implication Jesus is trying to say. A man's life should be the most important part of himself, with the exception of some people that have certain forms of of mental illness. We know that that exists. Most people deeply value their lives. Would you amen that? Most people deeply value their lives, and most people deeply value the lives of who? Others. Others. So would we give up our life or the lives of our children or family or friends for all the riches of the world? And what is the answer to that? Brothers and sisters, uh, what is the answer to that? Thank you, okay. Maybe we got some family issues. Clayton, you got a lot of work to do here, brother. (laughs) Tell you what, sounds like some folks are willing to sacrifice their families and stuff. No, why? Because the very reasons you would even think To have all the riches of the world was to spend it on your loved ones and family and friends. But if you sacrifice them to get the stuff, it defeats the entire plan, and that's his point. The only way to get and keep what really matters in your life is to sacrifice your life for Jesus. Y'all get that? That's troubling. I mean, that's not the values we're taught these days. It's just not the values we're taught. Sometimes churches don't even teach them anymore. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the the bottom line point for all of that basically is that true salvation is found in in, in self-denial. Self-denial. Is that mindset in your heart that it's not all about me, it's not all about what I want, it's about God and his word and what he wants for his kingdom. Is my whole life focused around that, that, that push in life? Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Well, that that burns really good, doesn't it? I mean, that, that like burns. If the other one didn't burn enough, this one certainly burns even more. This is saying that true salvation not only is found in self-denial and in taking up the cross daily and all that, but true salvation is also found in what of God's word? Acceptance. Acceptance that God's word is the truth. 
And, and we have seen that attacked nonstop in, in my whole lifetime. I mean, I'm 50, 52, and I have seen God's word attacked my entire lifetime. Sometimes by professing Christians will attack God's word, especially if God's word teaches something that they're, that they're guilty of not conforming to, amen? I mean, that happens all the time. Well, God's word says this, I don't agree with that, I'm gonna live this way. Well, I mean, the scripture says that you're, you're denying God's word then. Well, true salvation is found in acceptance, not being ashamed of God's word, but acceptance of God's word. It doesn't matter how, how, how much it convicts you or how much it offends you. The fact of the matter is he's God and you're not. You gotta conform your life to his word, period. If you're a Christian, if you're a professing Christian, I don't like that any more than you do, but it's just a fact. And Jesus is telling these disciples the hard truth and the hard facts to their face because he knows where he is headed. And where would that be? To death on Calvary's cross. He would be gone from the earth and they would be without him with, the whole, with, with only the Holy Spirit. And he knew what laid in store for them. So he is trying to prepare them just like we try to prepare our kids for life. He is trying to prepare his disciples for, his, for their lives without him. True salvation is found in acceptance of God's word. For whoever is ashamed, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So if you are ashamed of God's word, right, and you turn, because shame makes you turn from God's word, if you turn from God's word, don't come to repentance and at least, at least try to embrace it and follow and be obedient to it. If you are ashamed of God's word and reject it and turn from it, what does he do when he comes? He is ashamed of you and turns from you. I can't change the fact that the Bible says that. I can't change it, not gonna try to change it. It makes you uncomfortable, hallelujah, that's called spiritual conviction, amen? It means God loves you, he's trying to change your heart on something, like he's changed mine a thousand times. So what is shame? A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the reality of wrong or foolish behavior. That's shame, that's what shame is. Our culture teaches us to not, to not have shame. God says shame's a good thing. God says he, is, he has engineered us to sense that and to feel that as a compass to know when something's wrong. That's what shame is. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, shame is most definitely a painful thing. It's the feeling you get when someone does something that just makes you cringe or do something that causes you to go, oh no, right? Unexpected guests that want to come have a tour of the house, Amen. Does that put you in shame? They cannot go in that room. Do not let them go in that room. The toilet on the hallway is out of order, amen? That's shame. For me, when my children do something that is wrong, it brings me shame. What's the first thing we want to say when our kids do something wrong? We want to say what? I know that I raised you what? Yes! I know I raised you better than that. I know I don't do that. You didn't learn that from me. Where did you get that? That's shame. <laughs> That's shame, man. That's shame. Absolute shame. Being ashamed of something makes you want to hide it and avoid it because you know you're not supposed to do it or be involved in it. In the Bible, probably the best example of shame 
is when Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter, I mean, was just crushed with shame. Crushed with shame. He was afraid and ashamed of what had happened. And when he was confronted over his relationship with Jesus, what did he do? He denied his relationship with Jesus, denied him three times because he was afraid and ashamed and then became more afraid and ashamed. To be ashamed of Christ and his word, to try to dumb down everything in scripture so that neither the world nor you nor me is convicted of sin. If there is something that the American church is guilty of, that's it. Let's dumb it down. Let's dumb it down. Let's keep it funny. Let's keep it entertaining. Let's keep it energetic. Let's make it entertainment. Let's not get to the convictional meat of the text because we don't want to offend anybody. We want to get the biggest crowd we can, and we surely don't want to run anybody off. Amen? Is that how Jesus operated? No, indeed. Is that how the apostles operated? No, indeed. That is not the testimony we have in the New Testament. We don't, when we don't want to feel the sting of the scripture, we soften the blow to our souls. Much like Satan sowing doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say you would die if you ate of the fruit of the tree? Did he really say that? To be ashamed of Christ and his word is to avoid difficult texts in the word of God because you know there are people in the church that will be offended by what it says. We must not be ashamed of Christ and his word for if we are, Christ will be ashamed of us when he comes in glory of the Father and the holy angels. We must stand firm on the word of God and not be ashamed of Christ and his word for that is one of the marks of true salvation verse 27 we're almost done now this is the passage that 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 just blows people's minds and it, and it i gotta admit it blew mine for a while then i studied it deeply and and i'm i'm okay now amen i'm gonna try to make y'all okay okay we're gonna all be okay when we when we leave verse 27 but i tell you truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, the first thing everybody wants to say is, well, wait a minute. The kingdom of God, does he mean the, the, the second coming? Because if that's what he means, uh, all those folks are, 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 are dead now. So this, this, this text, this is wrong. This text is in error. Jesus spoke wrong. He was, he was wrong. Is that, is that what this means? Of course not. So let me tell you what I think it means. The main question here is what does he mean when he says kingdom of God? He can't mean the consummation of the age because that has clearly not happened yet. So he must mean a combination of things. The transfiguration, which is the next passage in Luke, where certain disciples will actually see him transform before them into the glory of God. It could mean or will, must mean the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. The Passover feast, his crucifixion, his passion narrative that he just mentioned, that has to be what he means by this. He must mean his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and then what else? Acts chapter two and the birth of the church. 
That's what he must, Pentecost, that's what he must mean. The kingdom of God being inaugurated into these last days. Some of you, he says, some standing here will not taste death until that happens. And that indeed was fulfilled. So that must be what it means. Before we close, let's go to Luke 12. We'll read this parable and then we will call it a day. Amen. And go find some food somewhere. Anybody hungry? Who's hungry? Say amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, 30 more minutes then. Let me find something else to preach on. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. I love you. Have I told y'all that lately? Have I told y'all that lately? Have I? Be honest. Okay, well, let me, let me tell you. Let me, let me tell you. I love you. I do. I, I mean it with all my heart. I know I get on y'all's nerves a lot. That's kind of my job to do that, I guess. But, but I really do love you, and my family continues to be just so happy to be here with you. I hope you feel. Thank you. All right. Amen. Thank, amen. 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 All right, Luke chapter 12, grab it, uh, grab it in 13 through 21, okay? Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me... I love the way Jesus says this. It's like he's from Tennessee, right? Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him what? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward who? God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for being a loving God that helps us as ministers to find our way through this difficult task of preaching and teaching and guarding and guiding the flock. Father, I thank you that your word is so clear mysterious where it needs to be, rock solid where we need it to be, so that we may walk and come follow you. The message today is clear. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and not be ashamed of your word. And Father, that's a tall order in this depraved culture. And Father, I don't say that pridefully or joyfully because I was a part of this depraved culture for 26 years. Lived all about myself, did not deny myself, was ashamed of your word, didn't want to hear your word. Certainly didn't take up any form of a cross and follow you daily. Nothing like that. I lived for myself and all about myself. So Father, help us have compassion for the lost world. 
compassion for the world that is confused and under the lying spirit of the enemy. Help us to live our lives in a way that sets a powerful witness and testimony for those on the outside that would hear our words, look into our eyes and see our lives and say, what is it? What is it about those Christians? What is it about those people? Why are they so loving? Why are they so sacrificial? And why do they stand so firm on that word, that Bible, to create intrigue so that they may ask and that they may seek? So Father, our prayer today as we leave this place is I pray if anyone does not know you, that this that opportunity is always available for them to come and know that you are good, to come and know that you are holy, to come and know that their sins can be forgiven, they can have new life that only comes from you and only you. There is no name on earth or under the earth by which men are saved but Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived 33 years in this life, sinless, ministered for three years, went to Calvary's cross, died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sin, the sin of the world, was buried in a tomb, and on the third day, raised from the dead, and is at your right hand. Father, that's the gospel. And Lord, we love it, and we stand for it, and we want everyone to know the truth of who you are. And we pray that as we leave this place today, as we go out to restaurants, wherever we go, that if we see someone hurting, or if we see somebody that looks angry, or that, that might need a pat on the back, or a shake of the hand, or a word of truth, that you would embolden us to joyfully and peaceably reach out to those in this community as you came down from heaven and reached out to us. And Father, we love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name.